Well, let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer. We've got a lot of ground to cover today. We're in the 26th chapter of Matthew, so if you have your Bibles, uh, you can go ahead and open them. And let's begin with a word of prayer. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, go ahead and open your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 26, as I bring the screen up here for you. We're going to read verses 17 through 29. It is a familiar section of the gospel, at least the event that it describes should be very familiar to all of us. It is the Passover feast that Jesus ate with his disciples the last time that he did this, and it involves the institution, of course, of the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, what we call Holy Communion. So Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 through 29. I'll go ahead and read these verses, and then we'll come back and look at them in detail. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? Jesus said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after the other, it is, a, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, you have said so. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Well, we have been taking a look at the last week of Jesus' life. We said that this is the most significant week in all of history. The church commonly refers to it as Holy Week. It's so significant that the Gospels give a disproportionate amount of space to just the events of these last seven days. We said that the Gospel of John gives over fully half of its narrative to just this last week. And we said that's rather remarkable when you consider the fact that Jesus lived for about 33 years, and he ministered on this earth for about three years, and fully half of the fourth gospel is given over to just the last seven days. And the same is true of Matthew. Matthew gives a disproportionate amount of space over to these last seven days as well. He gives about a third of his gospel over to these last seven days. So these really are the significant events. We said that if you understand what takes place between Palm Sunday and the Lord's resurrection. If you can understand those events, their significance, there is a sense in which you really comprehend and understand what the Christian faith is all about. There may be many other things that you don't understand, but if you at least comprehend the significance of these events, 
you have at least grasped the nettle of Christianity. And so these really are significant events, and we want to take a look at them and pay attention to them. Now, the first event, of course, that is recorded in this week is the Lord's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He rode into the holy city on the back of a donkey uh, in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He was presenting himself in a clear and unambiguous way as the Messiah. Up to this point, Jesus had sort of kept his true identity hidden from the people. You'll recall that from time to time, he would perform a great miracle, and then he would say to everybody, don't tell anyone about this. Uh, Jesus in John's gospel would continuously say, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come. But when he enters Jerusalem in that very dramatic way, there was no doubt whatsoever. Jesus was saying to the people of that city and to the people of Israel that he was, in fact, the Lord's anointed. So that was the beginning of this momentous week. And then, of course, over the course of the week, the attitude that the people had, the enthusiasm that they had for Jesus is going to sour. Uh, those shouts of Hosanna in the highest on Palm Sunday will eventually become shouts of crucify him, crucify him. So the Lord is going to be arrested during this week. He's going to be tried. There will be a series of trials. One will be a Jewish trial. He'll be dragged before the high priest Caiaphas and before the hereditary high priest Annas, and he'll be found guilty. He'll then be sent to the Roman authorities because the Jews at this point in their history did not have the authority to execute anyone for capital crime. So they'll hand him over to the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. And Pilate, of course, will eventually find fault with Jesus. Initially, he did not. In fact, he tried to get out of the whole situation, tried to wash his hands of the whole bad affair. But eventually what's going to happen is he is going to condemn Jesus to death. He's fearful of the crowds, fearful of an uprising. It's his responsibility to keep the peace there in Jerusalem. And so eventually he will hand Jesus over to be crucified. The Lord will be led out to a place outside the city, and he will be crucified between two thieves on a cross. And his lifeless and limp body will be taken down from the tree. It will be placed in a borrowed tomb, and on the third day he will be raised again. Uh, glorious victory over the powers of sin and death. Now, that is what that momentous week is all about. Those are some of the events uh, that we commemorate every year when we get close to celebrating Easter. But in the midst of all of those events, there is the one that we come to today here in the 26th chapter of Matthew, and that is what we commonly refer to as the Last Supper. It's the events that we commemorate every Maundy Thursday or Holy Thursday. And there is a sense in which this last meal, which Jesus eats with his disciples, is like the eye of the storm. Uh, those of you who have lived in South Carolina for any length of time know what a hurricane is like. Uh, you know that there's always that first wave of destruction, the wind and the storms. You have those outer bands of rain and so forth. And then there's all that destructive force. But eventually what happens is the eye passes over. I know that some of you who actually experienced Hurricane Hugo back in 1989 remember coming out after that initial destruction and being there in the midst of that eye. You can actually look up and sometimes you can see blue sky and you can see birds and you can see the sun shining. But you know that it is a temporary lull. The rest of the storm is eventually going to come. More waves, more wind, more rain, more destruction. Well, there is a sense in which Jesus had already faced that first bout of destruction. At this point, he was already being plotted against by the scribes and the Pharisees, that is to say the Jewish religious establishment. 
He's already technically been betrayed by Judas Iscariot. Judas has already agreed to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. It hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen on this very night, but the deal has already been made. And yet, the real destructive power of his enemies has not yet come to bear on Jesus' life. He has not yet been arrested. He has not yet been tried. He has not yet been crucified and laid in the tomb. There is this momentary lull in the storm in which Jesus gathers there in that upper room to eat the Passover meal as Jews had done for generations. And Jesus takes this as an opportunity to spend this last moment of fellowship with his disciples, and it's his last opportunity to teach them something. So I always think of this last night that the Lord spent with his disciples, the institution of the Lord's Supper, as this eye in the midst of this great hurricane that is breaking upon the life of Jesus and indeed on the life of his followers. Now, Matthew introduces this event um, in a different way. In other words, he doesn't just jump right into it and talk about the Lord's Supper and the Passover meal. He has a number of things that he says as introductory material, and I want to take a look at them because it's Matthew's way of sort of setting the stage and reminding us that in the midst of all of this chaos and this confusion, there is nevertheless one who remains in charge of all of the circumstances and that is Christ himself. Uh, Matthew actually points out to us two things in particular that are of significance. First of all, he makes it very clear that Jesus is in control of these events. I pointed out last week that there are times when we look at the events surrounding Jesus' death, and we have a tendency to think that this is a tragic accident. And there's no denying the fact that this is indeed tragic. This is the most tragic event in all of history, that men and women should crucify God incarnate, the Son of God who came for us and for our salvation. That is certainly tragic, the most tragic event in all of history. There have been a lot of heinous crimes that men and women have been involved in, but this is certainly the worst. And yet, while this is a tragic event, it is not an accident. We pointed out last week that this was part of God's plan from the beginning, even before the beginning, because Jesus is referred to in the book of Revelation as that lamb which was slain before the foundation of the world. We said that's an extraordinary thought to consider. The very idea that before we were even created, before we had ever fallen, before there was any need for our salvation, nevertheless, God put in place the means by which we would be redeemed. That will just blow your mind when you actually pause and consider it. And so what Matthew wants us to understand is that this is a tragic event, but it's not an accident. It is actually part of God's plan. And you can see a bit of that when you look at verses 17 and 18. Uh, this was the feast of the Passover, sometimes referred to as the feast of the unleavened bread, which was part of the Passover. And we're told that the disciples came to Jesus with a question. They said, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? Uh, they naturally assumed uh, that they were going to be responsible for making all of the necessary preparations. But what you notice is that they don't have to do that because Jesus has already done it. Verse 18 says, he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. In other words, Jesus recognizes that the moment for which he was born 
The moment for which he had come into this world was at hand. And that, of course, is to be lifted up, not on a throne, but lifted up upon a tree. And he says, just tell the man that he will eat the Passover at his house. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Just that little bit indicates to us that Jesus was moving all of the pieces into place. The Passover, of course, is when the lambs were slaughtered in Jerusalem, and that blood was symbolic of the fact that sin has a terrible price. The wages of sin is death. Sin is not a small thing to God. God had established an old covenant. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But God had established an old covenant in which the lambs would be slaughtered, the innocent would be slaughtered for the guilty. And Jesus has prepared to eat this Passover meal with his disciples, his last meal. He's moved everything into place to remind them that he will be the true lamb, the lamb of God, the Agnus Dei, who will be slain for them, that by his stripes they might be healed, and by his blood they might be cleansed. Keep your finger in Matthew for just a minute and turn, if you will, to John chapter 18, because there is an event that takes place after the Lord's Supper, but just before his crucifixion. And that, of course, is his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. And John describes it in a very interesting way. He's the only one that gives us these details. But when you read the details closely, you begin to see how much Jesus really is in charge. So keep your finger there in Matthew 26. Turn to John chapter 18. Jesus has now, at this point in John's narrative, left the upper room, he's crossed the Kidron Valley, and he has entered the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew's going to describe these events as well. But in John's narrative, he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it's here that he is arrested. The temple guards are making their way across that Kidron Valley. They're going to come up to the temple. Judas is going to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. They're going to come. They're coming with lances and with spears and swords because they assume they're going to have to take Jesus by force. They're assuming that his disciples are going to put up some resistance. But you'll notice that's not exactly how it happens. John chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden. It's actually an olive grove, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having produced a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing... All that would happen to him came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to him, I am he. Now, you'll notice that when they came, they asked for Jesus, and Jesus didn't lie to them. He fully acknowledged that he was the one they were seeking. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. When Jesus said to them, I am he, look at the response. They drew back and fell to the ground. In other words, they were terrified. That was not the reaction from Jesus that they were expecting. As I said, they were expecting some sort of resistance, but almost as if by divine compulsion, they were filled with terror. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you, I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. 
It's not a case you see where the temple guards or the scribes of the Pharisees have to come and drag Jesus off in resistance. Jesus willingly went to the cross. Nobody compelled him to do that. He willingly went out and met his fate. Matthew is saying the same thing. You can go back now to Matthew chapter 26. Jesus is saying the precisely the same thing here in Matthew's narrative as he was saying in John. He is prepared to meet his fate. It's not a tragic accident. It's tragic, but it's all part of God's plan. Another way that you see that Jesus is fully aware of everything that is transpiring and fully in control is the fact that he knows very well who's going to betray him. The other disciples apparently did not recognize that the betrayer was Judas. Now, we know with the advantage of hindsight that Judas was a thief and that Judas would take out of the common purse things that did not belong to him. We know all of that because the Gospels tell us. But it's interesting to note that on the night of the Last Supper, when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, they don't all automatically turn to Judas, assuming that it's him. In fact, they're all gripped with a sense of fear, and they begin to respond by saying, Lord, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? So you can see Jesus is completely in control of these circumstances. This great storm is about to break upon his life. And yet in the midst of this, there is a sense of serenity. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus is not troubled in his spirit. We know that when he went into the Garden of Gethsemane, he was deeply troubled. But there was a sense of serenity, the sense that he was fulfilling the Father's plan. Listen, that should be a great encouragement to us whenever we face storms in our life and in our difficulties. There are times when we wonder if anybody is in charge, if this has taken God by surprise. But if this text teaches us anything at all, it teaches us that there is nothing that takes God by surprise. He is fully in control. Let that be an encouragement to us. So that's the first thing that Matthew wants us to understand as he introduces this event that we're going to take a look at in just a few minutes. But the other event, really the other individual that Jesus introduces us to is Judas Iscariot and the betrayal that is going to take place as a consequence of Judas's wickedness. Verses 20 through 25, when it was evening, he reclined at table with the 12. As they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. Judas is perhaps the most tragic figure in all of Scripture, perhaps the most tragic figure in all of history. Because there are few people who have had as many advantages as Judas Iscariot had, and yet fell so far. He really was a lost soul. And we know that because Jesus makes it very clear. He said, it would have been better for that man if he had never been born. Now, Matthew just gives us the bare bones sketch of what was happening with Judas. But again, I think it's helpful to look at some of the other gospels to see really what was happening in the life and the heart of this man, because it's very easy for us to stand in judgment of Judas Iscariot and think to ourselves, we would never have done what he did. 
But we must never forget that Jesus Christ died for sinners, and we are all sinners. There is a sense in which within all of us, there is this capability to do precisely what Judas did. So we have to ask ourselves, how was it that he came to such a low place? Because after all, Judas was one of the apostolic band. Judas was there with the others. He had seen Jesus perform miracles. He'd seen people raised from the dead. And so you ask yourself, what in the world was going on in this man? Well, we've talked a little bit about Judas uh, last week. We said that Judas was a man who was deeply concerned for material possessions. Uh, we also said that Judas may have been one of those people, one of the um, people that was deeply disappointed in the fact that Jesus didn't fulfill their messianic expectations. He probably expected that the Messiah was going to be a political or military leader who would drive out those pagan polytheistic Romans, and Jesus proved not to be that kind of a Messiah. He did come to be lifted up as a king, but not upon a throne, but upon a tree. And the Old Testament said, cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. And so it may very well have been the case that Judas felt betrayed himself, that here he was putting all of his dreams and aspirations and hopes into Jesus, and here was Jesus dashing that to the ground. And so perhaps he felt betrayed by Jesus, and so he felt that it was, well, turnabout is fair play. He could in turn betray the Lord. But again, I find John's description to be particularly compelling. So again, put your finger in Matthew chapter 26 and skip over to John. John's Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Let's just take a look at the way John describes it. I call this a journey into the night. John throws a, a few little details in there that when you listen to them, they're almost chilling. John chapter 13, beginning at verse 21. And after these sayings, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. He's sitting at the table. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. Another layer of detail you see in John's gospel. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at that table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that Judas, because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him to buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And this is the chilling part. John says, and it was night. Now, physically, it was probably dark outside. This was an evening meal. But I think what John is trying to convey is that there's something else here. There is a darkness. There is a foreboding that has entered the scene. When Judas went out, he went out and it was night. It was night in his soul. There is a sense in which Judas Iscariot had been on this journey for some time. But what's fascinating is that there was a moment, at least, when he still could have turned back. You've all heard the expression, the point of no return. 
Uh, that's what's sometimes described by pilots when they're traveling across the Atlantic Ocean. The airplane has just enough fuel to make it from point A to point B. But if you go too far across the Atlantic, you cross that point of no return, that invisible line beyond which you can no longer go back. You don't have enough fuel to go back. The only thing you can do is go forward. Well, there is a sense in which Judas Iscariot, right up to this moment, the last supper, the last meal that Jesus would have with his disciples, had the opportunity to repent. But there was a point when apparently he crossed that point of no return. When was that? Look at verse 27. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Judas had been on a journey for some time. Satan was having his way with Judas, filling his mind with all of these thoughts of betrayal. But there was still the chance, still the opportunity to turn back until that moment when he took that morsel from the hand of the Lord, symbolic of the fact that he had broken fellowship with Christ, that he was willing to be so insidious. And at that moment, we're told that Satan entered him. Satan took control of Judas's life, and there was no turning back. What a tragic situation, that point of no return. There is a sense, ladies and gentlemen, in which we all come to a point of no return. It may not be as dramatic as the one that Judas experienced here in John chapter 13, but we all come to that point, certainly at the point of death. That's the point of no return. If we have not given our lives over to Christ, if we have not served him up to that point, when death comes, that is the point of no return. There is no opportunity after we have passed from this life to repent and amend our ways. The New Testament says it is appointed man once to die, and then there's judgment. So if Judas teaches us anything at all, he teaches us that now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to get our lives in order and to show where we are in terms of our relationship with Christ. Something else here, it's not stated clearly, but I think it is implied. And that is the proximity that Judas had to Jesus, even at this Last Supper. You'll notice the way that John describes it here. He says that they were reclining at table. Uh, in the first century, they don't actually sit on chairs the way we sit around a dining room table today. They sat on the floor, and the table was very low to the ground, and so they were able to recline on pillows. And we're told that they were sitting around. There were 12 of them sitting around on the floor, so they would have been spread out. And we're told that as they were sitting there, one of them, John, was sitting close to Jesus on his right side. And that's why Peter leaned over to John and said, he's talking about somebody betraying him. Ask him who it is. He told John to do that because John was in close proximity to Jesus. And Jesus replies, the one who will betray me is the one to whom I give this morsel of bread. And Jesus dipped it and he handed the bread to who? To Judas Iscariot. Now, what that means is that Judas Iscariot must have been in close proximity like John to Jesus. Otherwise, Jesus would not have been able to simply hand him the morsel. So when I read this text, I think that Judas Iscariot was sitting on Jesus' left. 
to sit at the master's right hand and his left hand. You'll recall that two of the disciples had asked for that honor in the kingdom of God, James and John. Those were, those were positions of trust. Those were positions of honor. Here was Jesus honoring Judas Iscariot by allowing him to sit at his hand in the full knowledge that that one would actually betray him for 30 pieces of silver for the price of a slave in the first century. Folks, this reminds us that close proximity to Christ is not the equivalent of salvation. You can hear the gospel your whole life. You can be a faithful attendee at church and still miss the heart of the gospel. And that is exactly what happened with Judas Iscariot. He is really one of the most tragic figures, if not the most tragic figure in all of history. So close to the kingdom of God physically, but so far away in his heart. It also reminds us that the earthly decisions we make have eternal consequences, folks. The choices we make in regard to God, in regard to Jesus Christ, will have lasting, eternal implications for us. So all of this is taking place here in this 26th chapter of Matthew's gospel, all of it. But of course, the heart of the matter is this eye in the midst of the storm. It is this very important event, Jesus' last meal with his disciples, the Passover meal. Now you understand that the Passover was a very significant event. It was a high feast for the Jews. It was a reminder of the fact that God had delivered them by signs and wonders and the power of his outstretched arm. Now, this was the meal that Jesus was eating with his disciples. It was not initially what we call the communion meal. This was a Jewish meal. Keep your finger there in Matthew and turn back to the Old Testament, to the book of Exodus. It's helpful to remind ourselves of exactly what was happening here. What was this meal that Jesus was eating with his disciples? Now, we're going to see that he reinterprets this meal, but initially, at least, it is the meal that all of the disciples would have been familiar with. It's not the first time they'd ever eaten this meal. They'd eaten it their whole lives. It was an annual commemoration. So Exodus chapter 11, and we're going to read through. It's a rather lengthy section, but not too bad. But Exodus chapter 11, the people of God had been in captivity. They had been slaves in Egypt for over 400 years. And you'll remember that God had raised up a servant, Moses, to deliver them from their captivity. And Moses had gone to Pharaoh, the most powerful temporal ruler of his day, and demanded that the people be released from their bondage. And of course, Pharaoh had refused to do so. Uh, the slaves uh, were very helpful to him. Um, their ability to make bricks and so forth and build uh, cities and so forth, this was lucrative, and he was not about to let them go. And so God brought a series of plagues upon the Egyptians. You remember the, the waters of the Nile would turn to blood, and there were gnats, and there were frogs, and there were a whole host of things, plague of darkness, and so forth. But we're told that Pharaoh continued to harden his heart. He refused to let the people go until God finally decided to bring the greatest, most disastrous plague upon the Egyptians, and that, of course, was the death of the first born. And that's what's recorded in Exodus chapter 11, a brief chapter. So let's just go ahead and read through it. Then the Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. 
Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold and jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. That's because of all of these terrible plagues that have been brought upon the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle. A plague is going to come upon the land. There shall be great cry throughout the land of Egypt, such as that there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you, and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of this land. Now, Without going ahead and reading through the rest of chapter 12, what happens is that God does send that plague, the death of the firstborn upon the land of Egypt, whatever that looked like. But God made a promise to the people, and the promise was this, that if they would take the blood of a lamb and smear that over the doorpost and lentil, then the angel of death, when he passed through Egypt, would pass over the house of the blood. The blood would be a covering to them. And what chapter 12 tells us of Exodus is that when that happened, they were to eat a feast, a commemorative meal reminding them on an annual basis of exactly what God had done for them. That's what we read in Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. We don't need to read it all, but it's probably worth reading at least part of that. So Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. And this is the commemorative meal that they're supposed to eat. And this is the meal that Jesus is meeting to meet his disciples with and to eat with them. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Uh, this would have been the month of Nisan. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household, and the household is too small for, if the household is too small for the lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. 
it is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Here's the critical verse, verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. So that's the event, God delivering his people from their bondage in Egypt, leading them out into the wilderness and eventually to the promised land. And the way that he breaks the will of the Egyptians and Pharaoh in particular is by this last plague in which the angel of death passes over the houses of Israel because they have the blood over the doorpost. It is this meal, when you go back to Matthew chapter 26, that Jesus, this memorial day, that Jesus is eating with the disciples. They, they did this, as I said, annually. It was a statute. It was a law from the Lord. And I think we can naturally assume that when Jesus began the meal, and he was obviously presiding over the events of that night, he probably began the meal the way that Jews always begin the Passover meal, with that great benediction. Praise be to you, Yahweh, our God, King of the world, who brings forth the fruit from the earth, or the food from the earth. This was the typical way that a Jewish man, a Jewish head of household, would begin the Passover meal. And Jesus presumably began the Passover meal in this way. It was a feast of Passover. But then Jesus does something that must have taken the disciples completely by surprise. When he begins to distribute the food, the bread and the wine, he adds something, something that was not in the Passover liturgy. Verses 26 through 28. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Even then, as the Passover lambs for each house in Israel were being slaughtered there in Jerusalem, Jesus, who was the Lamb of God, was preparing to go to the cross and be slaughtered for them that by his blood they might be saved. The angel of death, as it were, might pass over them because he was the perfect lamb, the perfect offering without blemish. This is my body, which is given for you. This is my blood, which is shed for you. That must have taken the disciples completely by surprise. Because remember, up to this point, they were still in the dark. They had no real sense of what Jesus was all about. They must have felt the tension in the air. They must have sensed that something was off. But they had no real idea. Others did. We talked about Mary of Bethany last week. She had a sense of what Jesus was going to do, but the disciples didn't. But this must have sent a clear message to them. And it must have gone through them like an electrical current. It must have shocked them. Now, it raises a question, a question that has been hotly debated. This is an important event, 
but it is one that has been the source of great controversy throughout the centuries. What exactly did Jesus mean by those words, this is my body and this is my blood? In the time that we have remaining, about 15, 20 minutes, I want to take a look at the various views of the communion service. And that's what this is. Jesus takes the Passover meal and he reinterprets it. What was the Lord's Passover becomes the Lord's Supper. It becomes the service of holy communion for you and for me. What did Jesus mean by those words? Well, in the Western tradition, there have been basically four views of holy communion, of what is taking place every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. The first view is what is commonly referred to as the Catholic view, the Roman Catholic view, and this is the doctrine of transubstantiation. It basically holds that every time the priest celebrates the Mass, the bread and the wine are actually transformed into the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, to borrow the, the, the actual language of the Roman Catholic theology, what happens is that the substance of the bread and the wine, but not the accidents of the bread and wine, are transformed. Now, that terminology, substance and accidents, actually comes from the philosophy of Aristotle. And Aristotle was highly influential on medieval theology. What it basically means is that the substance, that is the essence of the bread and the wine, are transformed. They are, they are actually transformed, changed into the flesh and blood of Christ, so that a person actually is eating Jesus' flesh, they are actually drinking his blood. Now, the substance has changed, not the accidents. In other words, it still looks like bread and wine, but it's not. It's actually flesh and blood. Incidentally, this is one of the reasons why until the Second Vatican Council, the Roman Catholic Church had a tendency to distribute communion in one kind only. It's because if you drop the bread, the body of Christ, it can be redeemed. You can, you can snatch it up again. But if the chalice is spilled, the precious blood of Christ is gone forever. Nobody wanted to take that risk. Now, the, the church changed that view uh, in the 1960s with the Second Vatican Council. But that's where it comes from, this very high view. After all, Jesus did say, this is my body, and this is my blood. And so the Roman Catholic Church takes that very seriously. They take the Lord's words at face value. Now, the second view that became dominant in the Western Church is the Lutheran view. It was the view of Luther himself, and that is what is commonly referred to as consubstantiation. Now, Luther, you'll recall, had been an Augustinian monk. He had been a Roman Catholic priest. He took seriously the Mass, and um, even though he recognized that there were problems with the doctrine of transubstantiation, at least the Reformers pointed out problems, nevertheless, he was not willing to give up the idea that Christ is somehow physically present in the elements. He loved to quote Jesus' words in the Latin, hoc est corpus meus, this is my body. What Luther basically believed is that the bread and the wine were still bread and wine. Uh, he had a problem with that Aristotelian philosophy that substance can change, but not accident. He recognized that when you eat bread, it tasted like bread, it felt like bread, and when you drank the wine, it tasted like wine. So he didn't want to deny the fact that our, our, our senses do bear witness to the truth. 
But at the same time, he didn't want to deny the fact that Jesus did say, this is my body. So he came up with a slightly different view, very similar to the Roman Catholic view, but not exactly the same. Basically, what he says is that there is a uni unification that takes place between the elements, the bread and the wine, and the flesh and blood of Christ. So Jesus is physically present, but it's combined somehow with the bread and the wine. Now, that is a very high view. It's the dominant view among Lutherans today. It's very similar to the Roman Catholic view. The third view, however, that became very popular in the Western church is what is known as the memorial view. And this is based upon Paul's description of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians, where Jesus says, take and eat this in remembrance of me. Uh, this was the view that was held by the Swiss theologian and reformer Ulrich Zwingli, and it is the view that is held by most Baptists today, that when you eat the bread and you drink the wine, you do it in memory. There is no sense in which Christ is physically present in the elements themselves. It is simply a memorial. Now, we take it seriously, and we remember Christ and all that he did in it. But these things are symbols and nothing more. That's the memorial view. And it's based upon the fact that Jesus said, do this in memory. He said that just as he said, this is my body. And furthermore, it seems pretty obvious, Baptists would say, in light of some of the other things that Jesus said, that this is what he meant. That he didn't literally mean that this is my body, this is my blood. Because after all, Jesus said a lot of things. He said, I am the gate, I am the door, I am the good shepherd. And none of that was meant to be taken literally. So that's the third view of Holy Communion, the memorial view. The fourth view is the view of most Presbyterians, and I would say the vast majority of Episcopalians or Anglicans. And this is the spiritual or real presence view. It too is based upon something that Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Uh, this is the view that Christ is somehow truly present in the communion, but not in a physical way. It's not as though Christ is physically present in the elements themselves, but as we go forward and receive the bread and the wine, and we feed on him by faith, Christ is truly present in our midst, in the midst of the people. Now, the reason why Anglicans and Presbyterians have rejected, for the most part, the memorial view is because in that same passage in which Paul talks about doing this in remembrance of me, he also says that some people were taking the communion unworthily, and as a consequence, were getting sick and dying. Well, you don't get sick and die merely from a symbol, do you? And so the vast majority of Anglicans and Presbyterians have argued that, yes, Christ is truly present. Where two or three are gathered, he is there in the midst of them. And as we eat that bread and as we drink that wine, we are lifted by grace through faith to that place where we feed on Christ and enjoy the benefits of his redeeming work. Now, those are the four dominant views of Holy Communion, and I'm sure there are a number of questions that we're going to have about them. If you have questions, start typing them in right now. But where do we stand? Uh, we're Anglicans, and we all know that as Anglicans, we sort of are the via media. We said that the vast majority of Anglicans ascribe to this last view, the real presence view, but not all of them. 
Well, it's really interesting. Um, if you read through the Book of Common Prayer closely, in particular, the 39 Articles of Religion, one of you, the things that you will notice is that Anglicans are pretty agnostic on this, agnostic in a good sense. In other words, we don't define specifically what is going on in the communion service. All of these views, with the exception of one, are regarded as legitimate by the Book of Common Prayer. There's only one view that is specifically condemned as being contrary to the nature of a sacrament. And that is the view of transubstantiation. So uh, you may not have your Book of Common Prayer close to you, but let me just go ahead and read to you. It's on page 873, and it has to do with the Lord's Supper. And this is what it says. The Supper of the Lord is not only a sign of the love that Christians ought to have among themselves one to another, but rather it is a sacrament of our redemption by Christ's death insomuch that to such as rightly, worthily, and with faith receive the same, the bread which we break is a partaking of the body of Christ, and likewise the cup of blessing is a partaking of the blood of Christ. Transubstantiation, or the change of the substance, there it is, those two words, substance and accident, the substance of bread and wine in the supper of the Lord cannot be proved by holy writ, that is holy scripture but is repugnant to the plain words of scripture, overthroweth the nature of a sacrament, and hath given occasion to many superstitions. The body of Christ is given, taken, and eaten in the supper only after an heavenly and spiritual manner. And the mean whereby the body of Christ is received and eaten in the supper is faith. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper was not by Christ's ordinance reserved, carried about, lifted up, worshipped, or adored. Now, why is it that the Anglicans specifically condemn the doctrine of transubstantiation? I mean, after all, Jesus did say, this is my body, this is my blood. Was it just the reformers' overreaction against Roman Catholicism, medieval Catholicism, that made them say these kinds of things? I don't think so. I think one of the things you have to remember about the English reformers is that they were great biblical scholars. One of the great battle cries of the Reformation was sola scriptura. They wanted to go back to the sources, back to scripture as the authority for the life of the church. And as they studied the scriptures closely, they realized that even though Roman Catholics were doing their best to honor the Lord's words, there were some things in there that indicated that they were to be taken in a different way. First thing that the English reformers noticed was that the disciples were Jewish. And when Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, if he really meant that this was literally his blood, the disciples would have been appalled. If you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, you'll recall that Jews were forbidden to eat any kind of meat that still had the blood in it. You see that even with the Passover meal. There was to be no blood in the lamb. It had to be roasted completely, not boiled. So if Jesus really meant that this was his blood, the disciples would have been appalled by that and would have taken a great deal more instruction for them to get over that hump. So the English reformers recognize that in the context, it doesn't seem to be that Jesus is saying this is physically, literally his body or his blood. The second thing they said is that our senses are given to us by God. And this distinction between substance and accidents is really an artificial distinction. When you eat the communion elements, when you receive the host or you receive the blood, the chalice, you know that that tastes like bread and it tastes like 
wine. And so they say that to argue that it has somehow been changed, transformed, but it still tastes and looks like something else, they say that is an artificial distinction. They had a problem again with the Aristotelian philosophy that had made its way into medieval theology. Third reason why they rejected transubstantiation is because of the doctrine of the incarnation. Jesus had taken on flesh and blood. God had become man. That's what the first chapter of John's gospel said. And the word by whom all things were made became flesh and dwelt among us. And one of the things that the incarnation teaches us is that Jesus was fully human. He was not 50% human, 50% God, or 90% deity, and 50% human. It's not that at all. Jesus was fully God and fully man. That's the mystery of the incarnation. And because Jesus had taken on human flesh, what that means is that he could only be at one place at one time. He could not be everywhere simultaneously. That's one of the reasons why Jesus said to his disciples, it is necessary that I go away, because unless I go, the Holy Spirit cannot come. The way by which Christ is present with his church today, everywhere, at all times, in all places, is by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the significance of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit coming down so that the Spirit of Christ could be with his disciples wherever they went. As it was, because of the incarnation, Jesus was limited to time and space. The coming of the Holy Spirit means that he's no longer limited. But if you mean that this is physically Jesus' body and blood, well, then that flies in the face, the English reformer said, of the doctrine of the incarnation. And the final view is this. They said, when Jesus said, this is my body, and we've already alluded to this, he said a lot of other things that were not meant to be taken literally. He said, I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the truth. I am the life. There are all kinds of symbolic images that Jesus used and the other New Testament writers use to describe spiritual reality. And so when Jesus said, this is my body, it obviously represented something. This is my blood, that wine obviously represented something, but it didn't necessarily mean that you had to take them literally. Now, as I said, the prayer book acknowledges that all these other views are acceptable. While most people subscribe to the real presence view, there are Anglicans who believe that it is merely a memorial and we take it in remembrance. It's special, it's important, it's the means by which Christ reminds us and brings to our memory the fact that he has paid the price for our sins, but you don't have to hold to a higher view of the Eucharistic theology. Even the Lutheran view of consubstantiation is not condemned in the prayer book. So which view should you adopt? Well, maybe C.S. Lewis got it right. C.S. Lewis said there's been too much arguing back and forth over the Holy Eucharist. He says, Jesus said, take and eat, not take and understand. And maybe there's some wisdom in that. We are to take it, eat it after a heavenly manner, to recognize that this is a sacrament of the Lord's body and blood. And what God is doing in it, perhaps it's a mystery. But what we do know is that when it is taken and received by faith, it brings to us the benefits of Christ's atoning death for us. This became the whole issue of the Eucharist, a, a great debate in the English church. There would be great battles back and forth. 
As you all know, there would be uh, the break, initial break with Rome during Henry VIII's reign, and then Henry would die, and Edward VI would come to the throne, and the church would move in a very Protestant direction. And then after the death of Edward VI, um, Mary would, appear, would arrive on the throne, Mary Tudor. And of course, Mary was a Catholic, and she would punish uh, the, um, the reformers. She would have Cranmer, Latimer, Ridley, and others put to death. And so there was all of this give and take. There was a great deal of bloodshed, and a lot of it centered around this whole issue of the Eucharist, how we understand Eucharistic theology and so forth. So that by the time Elizabeth I ascends to the throne, she's done with all of that. She wants to unite the people. And she wants people to acknowledge the fact that there is a mystery involved. She had a wonderful quote when she was asked about Holy Communion. She said, "'Twas the God, "'Twas God the word that spake it, he took the bread and break it. And what the word did make it, that I believe and take it. Now, somebody once asked Elizabeth what she meant by that. And she refused to answer. She's simply saying there is a mystery involved. And it's interesting. You can see this on Sundays when we distribute Holy Communion. In the first, when, when the first break with Rome took place during the reign of Henry VIII, nothing really changed in terms of the church's theology. Priests still had to remain celibate, and the mass was still said in Latin in those early days. When Henry died, however, his son, Edward VI, who was a teenager, came to the throne. Edward was not able to rule in his own right, so he had a whole collection of advisors. And one of those advisors was Thomas Cranmer, who became the principal architect of the Book of Common Prayer. And Thomas Cranmer was the man who was responsible for producing the first Book of Common Prayer, which came out in 1549. Now, the 1549 prayer book, the first Book of Common Prayer, was very much like the Latin Mass in every respect except for one. The words were in English, in the common tongue, the vulgar tongue, as they called it in those days. When the priest distributed the communion elements, this is what he said. This is my body, which is given for you. Take this. This is the body of Christ given for you. Preserve your body and soul unto everlasting life. The body of Christ, which is given for you. Preserve your body and soul unto everlasting life. Now, how many of you have ever heard those words in church on Sunday? Those of you who attend St. Philip's? That's exactly how we give out the bread. We say, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee, preserve thy body and soul into everlasting life. But Cranmer eventually moved Edward VI in a more Protestant direction. So a few years later, in 1552, they came out with the second book of common prayer, which was far more Protestant in its approach. The officiants were no longer referred to as priests, but as ministers. Clergy were not expected to wear Eucharistic vestments, but choir dress. And the biggest change came in terms of the words of administration. Now the priest no longer says, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee, preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life. But instead, the priest says, take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you. And feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. Now, just a show of hands, how many of you have ever heard those words before? Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for thee, and feed on him in thy heart by faith with thanksgiving. So there's a radical change. 
1662 prayer book, which is sometimes referred to as the Elizabethan prayer book, combined both of those. Because again, the church was acknowledging the fact that there is a bit of a mystery here. And so now, when communion is administered, the priest goes to one person and says, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you, preserve your body and soul unto everlasting life. But he goes on to the next person and says, take and eat this in remembrance, that Christ died for thee, and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. So there is a bit of a mystery. Elizabeth had the final word, and there is a sense in which you and I are not to understand everything. There are many mysteries with God. His ways are higher than our ways. Our finite minds couldn't understand an infinite deity even if we wanted to. So perhaps when it comes to communion, the best thing for us to do is to give thanks to the Lord that he has given it to us. It is a gift. It is the means by which we do remember all that he has done for us. And it is a reminder that when we come in faith, he comes and deigns to meet us make himself known, that we might receive by faith his body broken on our behalf, his blood shed for our salvation. Lewis got it right. Take and eat. Don't take and understand. Well, next week, what we're going to take a look at is the real significance. There's been a great deal of battles about, as I said, a great many battles about where what this really means, what it really stands for, what's really taking place every time communion is celebrated. But what's really more important is what this stands for. What are the great Christian doctrines that we are meant to take to heart? And that's what we're going to take a look at next week. So we're not finished with the Lord's Supper just yet. We're going to take a look at that next week. But let me just pause there. We've run over just a little bit, but you've got to give me a little bit of grace because we got started about five minutes late. But there may be some chat, there may be some questions for us. If so, let's go ahead and, and see what they are. Where? Through the chat. Okay. Looks I'm gonna have to take this down for just a minute. And let's see what we've got here. Okay, in terms of chat. There is one. Rachel, what is it? Because I'm not seeing it. From Charlene, okay. Some Protestants have removed the altar, saying that Christ has been sacrificed once and for all. Can you talk a little about that? Right. So Charlene raises a very um, important question. She says, some Protestants have removed the altar. They don't call it an altar. Uh, they may call it a table, the Lord's table, and rather than an altar. Now, clearly at St. Philip's, we have an altar. Uh, incidentally, we didn't always have an altar. Uh, that was something that was put in place um, back in the 1930s, 1920s or 1930s, after there had been a fire uh, in that section of the church. And uh, it had to be rebuilt, and they brought in a very famous architect um, who came in and um, designed that whole apse where we see the stained glass window and the altar and the reredos and so forth today. Yes, uh, a lot of Protestants, and this includes Anglicans, got rid of the altar because that very term altar implies sacrifice. And if we don't believe that an actual sacrifice is taking place there, why even have an altar? And so many Anglicans have what they call a holy table or an altar table. 
but they don't refer to it as an actual place of sacrifice per se. On the other hand, um, Anglicans have gotten around that, um, not wanting to destroy their beautiful churches. Uh, they've gotten around that by simply stating the fact that a sacrifice is offered every Sunday. It is not a physical or bloody sacrifice. It's not the sacrifice of the mass, but we do offer ourselves. We say it every Sunday, and here we offer and present ourselves, our souls and bodies to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto thee. We also refer to it as a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. So the altar represents for us not a place of sacrifice, but rather it represents the sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf. It represents the presence of God. And that is one of the reasons why that section of the church is the most sacred section. It's cordoned off, and it's one of the reasons why when we come in, we reverence the altar and we reverence the cross. It represents the sacrifice Christ made on our behalf, and it is a call for us to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto him, our souls and bodies. Okay, great question. Anything else? This is your chance. All right, if not, then let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. And um, we can give thanks to the Lord for this wonderful gift of the sacrament, um, for the gift of Holy Communion, which is the means by which we are united to him and he to us. Whether that be physically or whether that be spiritually, we are thankful for it. So let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, teach thy people to love thy house best of all dwellings, thy scriptures best of all books, thy sacraments the best of all gifts, the communion of saints the best of all company, and that we may as one family and in one place give thanks and adore thy glory. Help us to keep always thy day, Sunday, the first of days, holy unto thee, our maker, our resurrection, and our life. God blessed forever. Amen.